I'm Natalie Siston. And I'm Joy Schwartz. We are The The Collective Voice. Voice. We are two college friends who will talk about issues that impact professionals at work and in life. This podcast episode is called We Are Our Own Worst Enemy. And by we, we mean women. We're going to talk about both girl-on-girl crime and girl-on-self-crime in this podcast, and I'll explain what those mean. Let's start with girl-on-girl. Our women listeners can probably recall at least one instance branded into our memories of when we fell into the mean girl trap. I'm referring to that one time when we were deliberately nasty to another girl. We knew it was wrong, and we did it anyway, because that girl was lower than us on the food chain, and for just a short moment, it felt good to be the big fish swallowing up the little fish. For me, this was a girl named Michelle. We had biology class together during my freshman year of high school. My friends and I prank called her once during a slumber party to tell her that one of the guys in our class had a crush on her. He clearly did not, but she believed us, later approached him, and was thoroughly embarrassed. Why did I, yes, I, taking the blame, my phone line, my house, sanction this nastiness? Because for one millisecond, I, along with my equally as dorky girlfriends, wanted to feel cooler than someone else. And you can tell from the tone of my voice, I still feel the guilt even now. (laughs) Natalie, do you have a story like this? Unfortunately, I do. Uh, Let's see, mine that I'll share in this context is that I was in band all through junior high and high school. And between my sophomore and junior years, I was selected to be a part of the Ohio State Fair Band. That's right. The Ohio State Fair is so great that it has its own band. Awesome. When you combine 200 teenage co-eds spending 18 hours a day together in close quarters, you are just calling for some girl-on-girl drama. So similar to you, Joy, I did not act alone. For no apparent reason, uh, Nancy became the victim of my clique's actions, all because she liked the same boy as I did. Hmm. We made fun of her, we did not include her in anything, and we were openly rude to her. Looking back, I think it was because we were jealous. We were jealous of the tall, blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl who got the guy. But as life goes on, when the same group of us assembled the next summer to be in the band for yet another year... The same girl came to be one of our best friends that year. And this time it was because we bonded over her breakup with the guy. (laughs) I'm glad this one had a happy ending, but it's probably the exception to the rule. Yeah, it it may be the exception to the rule. And, And I agree. We might have left our high school drama behind us. But unfortunately, we're just not as self aware of how we continue to tear down other women at work in our circle of friends, and even our relatives. It also takes on a different context as adults, usually in the form of how we parent, or rather how we judge the parenting of others. Amy Poehler actually refers to this as girl-on-girl crime, specifically with regard to parenting. She says we torture ourselves and we torture each other by placing judgment on other women, often publicly. For example, when a working mother is at a function asking her how how are you out? Who's watching your kids? Or even introducing a mom who works from home as Aiden's mom instead of by her own name. As a working mom, she says, there's this unspoken pact that women are supposed to follow. I'm supposed to act like I constantly feel guilty about being away from my kids. I don't. I love my job. 
And mothers who stay at home are supposed to pretend that they're bored and wish they were doing more corporate things. They don't. They love their jobs, or we hope. She says, if we'd all stick to this plan, there would be less blood in the streets. The biggest lie and crime of all is that we pretend to do it alone and look down on others who don't. Mm. So again, it all comes down to judgment that we place on each other with our words, with our eyes and writing. And Amy Poehler's examples are more subtle. Unlike a recent example you came across, Natalie, tell me more about that one. Yeah, the most interesting example I saw this recently was when HuffPost called out an article on Scary Mommy that proclaimed 3D lashes, jamberry, and other ways to lose Facebook friends. HuffPost responded by saying, uh, the title of their article was, You want to sell me something on Facebook? I'm cool with that. I think these two headlines are exactly what we're talking about. In a Scary Mommy post, the author spelled out everything that's wrong with hawking your wares on Facebook. <laughs> and HuffPost's response was, women suck. Ouch. Yeah, it is ouch. So instead of supporting ventures our friends are exploring, many in addition to a day job and raising a family, Scary Mommy, that article, found a way to tear them down. You know, that's really unfortunate, Natalie. It's not our place to judge if they're putting themselves out there. We really should be cheering them on, even if we don't need or believe in what they're selling. Exactly. I thought a lot about this recently because I have three friends who are in these type of businesses. One does skincare, one does beach body coaching, and the other is in Lutheran clothing. So I asked each of them why they pursued this opportunity, given that they all have very full-time jobs. And you're going to be surprised by this, but the main reason they're all doing this is personal development. Huh. I know. I thought that was really interesting. I mean, they, of course, they said the secondary income is helping them with school debt and children's education and potentially a nice vacation. Sure. But in general, they each said that they've taken on these ventures as a way to challenge themselves, allow them to spend time with their girlfriends in a fun environment, and help other people along the way, you know, whether that's helping someone create a cute new outfit or nutrition and fitness advice or giving them a new skincare regimen. So none of these women are out to alienate their personal network. They certainly don't want to lose Facebook friends over this. If, sure. if anything, they need support. It's actually similar to our purpose for this podcast. We wanted to do something for our own growth and development. And because of that, we're working hard to ensure we have a strong support system around us as we do it and to not let any uh, potential haters get in our way. No doubt, Natalie. And I love that you used suck and haters in your last statement. That's awesome. I'm not proud all the time, Joy. Let's be clear. Well, I may not be a good example on you in that regard, but that's okay. <laughs> but in all seriousness, those are great examples of what we mean when we talk about women cutting each other down. It's as if we didn't learn how to overcome this behavior in high school, so it manifests itself in our social lives. And social media has made it easier to publicly impose those judgments, which is so scary. Absolutely. And we saw that play out in the example I just walked through. And I think that's a good segue to talk about how girl-on-girl girl, girl girl crime comes out at the office. You told me that you recently came across something regarding this, right? Yeah, I did, actually. It was in a book called What Works for Women at Work, Four Patterns Working Women Need to Know. And I haven't read the entire book yet in the spirit of full disclosure, <laughs> but I did watch several videos and a book summary featuring the author summarizing the biases embedded in these four patterns. The, the fourth of these patterns is actually called tug of war, and it's essentially girl-on-girl -girl crime in the form of biases we pass through to other women related to the other three patterns. So the tagline for the, the book reads, 
From mean girls to queen bees, we've all heard about how hard women can be on each other. The research cited in the book claims that it isn't just our natural cattiness, as in the examples we mentioned right. before from our you know high school stories, but it, rather it goes deeper into these unconscious biases we as women have about mm-hmm. other women. And the root of it all is this perception that since so few women do actually have a seat at the table, that the rest of us have to compete for those few seats. And working women have to prove themselves repeatedly more than men. I think we can probably all align on that. The female take on pattern number one, called prove it again, is that senior women in an organization expect women who are newer to the workforce to work just as hard as they did to get there. And then they may judge those of us who automatically receive some flexibility and a seat at the table more harshly instead of realizing that their hard work helped pave the way to make this happen and then being proud of it. So those of us who are newer to the workforce have to express some empathy and sensitivity toward our senior sisters too, as they're likely still fighting against these patterns. Natalie, can you share a little bit more about the next pattern? Sure. The second pattern is the tightrope bias. It's all about that fine line we have to walk between appearing too feminine, coming on too strong or too masculine, or being perceived as the B word. I thought you were going to get that one in there after the other two I words. I can't after my, you know, saying saying suck and haters. I'm not going to say the B word. You're not going to make it a trifecta? No, I'm not. Okay. <laughs> Maybe sometime later in a podcast. Stay tuned. We might do that. Uh, so, you know, Sometimes we all join in the gossip, or worse yet, way worse than gossip around the water cooler, is when we're in talent discussions and we affirm one end of this tightrope for another woman. So I'm sure we're all guilty of this at some point or another, but we have to combat it and we have to support each other. Developing trust with our female colleagues and providing them with feedback so they can shift the perception is critical. We'll likely get into this topic in a future podcast, I'm sure. Um, Can you talk about the next pattern, Joy? Absolutely. And it's one many of us are familiar with, especially those of us like you and me who are working moms. It's called the maternal wall bias. So men and women are both guilty here. Even those of us self-proclaimed feminists harbor unconscious bias toward working moms or even working women who express interest in parenting. It becomes, it becomes conscious when women say or think, well, why does she need to leave early for meetings or get a career break or have a flexible work schedule when I worked full-time and supported my family just mm-hmm. fine? So it kind of goes back to Amy Poehler's comments that I mentioned earlier about how we judge other women by our own parenting standards or how we let our own guilt about not being the best mom, employee, boss, etc., turn us into mean girls. The author of the book I mentioned that we're reviewing describes it as a serious crisis because both women's identities are at risk. That's right, Joy. And I don't even see this as a parent issue either. I see it happening on the flip side with my colleagues who are single without kids, whether they be men or women. A lot of times Mm. they're the ones where the burden's being placed to say, oh, you don't have to go home to take anyone up or pick anyone up from daycare and make them dinner, so you can take the extra assignment. And I can see the frustration with them as well. So if that's your personal situation, that's also where you have to stand up for yourself. So, you know, the shoe's on both feet. Yeah, Joy, I don't think we're painting a really good picture here. So I do yeah. want people to think like there is a there's a world out there where where things aren't so bleak. And I actually can speak to that based on my own work environment. My boss is a woman and her boss is a woman. We all have children and we all have spouses who have very demanding careers. 
because of this environment that I'm in, I never find myself apologizing for leaving early for daycare pickup or for you know scurrying out of the office really quickly when daycare calls to say, oh, your child's sick, you need to come pick, pick her up. Last week, I was at a week-long sales conference, and I was facilitating a session that was happening at the end of the day. And the senior leaders who were in charge of the entire thing, they're both women, um, they gave permission for the session to end early. And when I casually mentioned that I appreciate an extra 30 minutes because I hadn't had a chance to call home all week, I didn't get any nasty looks. As a, in fact, they used this as an example of what the rest of the team could do with their extra time uh, versus doing you know, other things in Las Vegas. So sure. I think that they like that example. I guess I'm lucky to be in this great work environment. You are. I've worked primarily with women, and I'm grateful for that now that I'm a parent. I'm really happy that it's, that's been the case because there is a lot of empathy about you know, what that involves. To be honest, I fell into a lot of these patterns early in my career, and I'm embarrassed to admit it, but I did judge other women who didn't seem as committed or achievement-oriented as I was. And I really wish I could go back in time and tell myself that I was being obnoxious. But hopefully, uh, this is my way of making some amends. So how did, you, how did you cross that bridge, and how can we help our listeners understand how they can overcome that? Yeah, absolutely. So we hit on a couple of strategies implicitly on how to combat this tug-of-war bias. But here they are stated a little bit more explicitly. So number one is don't judge other women or join in when you see it happening. There's no right way to be a woman, and none of us have figured it out, and <laughs> no one else probably has either. So we need to express some empathy and a little bit of consideration and avoid some of that cattiness that we carried over from high school. Number two is be direct to resolve conflicts with other women. We need to approach them with positive intent and seek first to understand versus to be understood. Instead of having those behind-the-water cooler muttering things under our breath or talking about women to other women we trust. We need to be upfront about what we're experiencing and try to support them and challenge those perceptions where they are. Number three is respect one another's experiences. Generationally, our experiences may be different. So this goes back to what I was saying earlier about how women who have paved the way for those of us who have that flexibility now and, and can do more of what we need as, as working parents we need to respect it on both sides and exhibit some more consideration. Number four, we need to get women to work together on projects or tasks, but likely those that aren't related to women's issues because those who have been in the workforce longer may have some sensitivity there um, and want to distance themselves from those issues. So if we can get connected and work on subordinate tasks that have nothing to do with the fact that we're all women, it can be really powerful. And I know we've seen that play itself out with underrepresented groups or when we bring diverse groups of people together to work on subordinate tasks. It's a similar outcome. Number five, advocate for other women. You know, for example, speaking up when another woman's ideas aren't heard or if you hear a woman being faulted for being outspoken, ask, mm. I wonder if we would be having that same reaction if she were a man. Those are great strategies, Joy. So for any of our listeners who want to see the video where these are featured, you can check it out on the Lean In website. Just search for What Works for Women at Work on the website and the video will pop up for you. Natalie, let's wrap up this episode by talking about girl on self-crime. Ooh, that sounds fun. Let's it is. It. it is. Perhaps most importantly... Amongst the topics we've covered thus far, 
We mentioned that in addition to girl-on-girl crime, we also tend to engage in girl-on-self-crime. I'll explain what we mean by this with an example. When Natalie and I were brainstorming possible episode themes, I asked her to watch a short clip from an episode of Inside Amy Schumer. If you're a fan of Schumer or or her show, you know that she can be pretty vulgar. Natalie's facial expressions were enough of an indicator that I should paraphrase this clip for you rather than play it. And this is also our warning. If you choose to go watch it yourself, it is very explicit. So, Oh yeah, thanks for the disclaimer. (laughs) So the video is called Compliments Uncensored, if you want to check it out. The scene begins with two women, who we are to assume are friends, approaching each other by chance at a busy intersection in New York City. One friend warmly greets the other, complimenting her new dye job on her hair, and the complimented friend, unwilling to be praised, not only downplays the compliment, telling her friend, oh, you're just being nice. (laughs) She then goes on to protest by basically comparing her hair to excrement. And it was a lot nastier in the video. It gets much worse from there as more friends approach and repeat the same routine with increasingly controversial descriptions for their hair, weight, jobs, you name it. The cleanest was the friend who refers to herself as Susan Boyle's toothbrush. When one friend approaches and actually takes the compliment with a simple thank you, the rest of the friends react rather violently, unaccustomed to accepting praise from others. So as Joy said, this scene was an extreme example of girl on self-crime. I think we see it more on a day-to-day basis. It, It manifests by when we dismiss or we potentially go as far as disagreeing with a compliment or a positive comment someone makes about us. Or the one I'm most guilty of, which is feeling the need to justify or explain every positive comment (laughs) I get. For example, someone will say, hey, your hair looks really great today. And then I say, oh, I just got it cut. My stylist did it as if I have no possible way of doing my hair myself, right? Right. (laughs) Or, hey, cute outfit. And I have to say, oh, thanks. It was a gift from my mother as if I can't also buy my own clothes, right? (laughs) Or work-related might be a little more relevant for our audience. Sure. Hey, great job on that project. And then I proceed to give credit to every single person who might have walked in the vicinity of my desk while I was working it, working on the project versus just saying thank you for the compliment. You know, Natalie, I know there was a little bit of hyperbole there, but it's really telling. And it certainly speaks to some of the ways we discredit ourselves as women and some of our gender-based tendencies that get us into trouble, especially when comparing ourselves to men. But I don't want to get too deep into that (laughs) because I know that's fodder for a future podcast. So while we were having this conversation, we we did uncover some strategies to address girl-on-girl crime. What about girl-on-self, Natalie? Absolutely. I picked up some tips from a Huffington Post article, giving HuffPost a lot of credit today here on this episode, on ways to silence your inner critic. So I picked my favorites from a list. Um, Here goes. So first of all, put a better spin on things. You know, focus on the behavior in the moment versus needlessly making comments about your over, uh, overall character or personality. Secondly, and my favorite, because I'm not good at it, is just take the damn compliment. See, I said damn. So if we rounded out the trifecta there. Absolutely. So don't demure like Schumer's gal pals. Say thanks and move on with your day. The third one is before putting yourself down, ask, what would my best friend say, or what I, I like to say, what would my mom say, or what would a guy say about himself, right? Yeah, would a guy actually say that about himself, right? <laughs> exactly. Just shrug his shoulders and go on. Exactly. And finally, this is a good one too, is give your inner critic a name. 
And when you start hearing this inner critic, think of the name. Maybe it's the nag. Maybe it's the gremlin. And that will bring levity to the situation and remind you about your overall awesomeness and that you don't need to be nagging at yourself. Absolutely. I love those, Natalie. Breaking that behavior pattern is so challenging, though, and it takes continual work and effort, but that's what behavior change is all about, right? Absolutely. So in addition to those ideas, I I also recommend identifying an accountability partner to call you out politely on that girl on self-crime when he or she observes it. Absolutely. And I even think on the girl on girl crime, having having an accountability partner to help you break perceptions, you may be, you know, talking falsely about others, um, always going to someone you trust is so important. So I think that is a great recap of our girl on girl and girl on self crime for our, we are our own worst enemy episode. So I think we'll close it out here. Sounds good. Thanks to our listeners for joining us and remember the tips we shared on avoiding girl on girl and girl on self crime. And don't forget to check out our other podcasts on iTunes. This is Joy Schwartz and Natalie Siston with The The Collective Collective Voice. Voice.